Um, we're going to do now what we do each Sunday. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible, a Bible app, anything like that, would you turn with me to our passage today, Exodus chapter 20, beginning at verse 17. That's where we'll focus our time. Uh, but as we've done each week, we're going to begin with verse 1 and 2, just to set the context and the basis for the law itself, and then we'll jump to verse 17. So if you found that, if you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Start with verse 1 and 2, Exodus 20. <clears throat> and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we ask now as we come to your word, would you open our hearts and minds, ears, uh, to receive the food of your word today, that it would feed us, that it would grow us, that it would shape and change us, that we would leave this place today different than when we came in uh, because of this time together, worshiping, studying, uh, looking to you and focusing on you together as your people. Uh, would you accomplish the good purpose that you, I believe you have for each one of us in this word? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Man. Okay, good. We're already off to a good start. I got the right slide, so check. Um, why don't we jump to that next picture? Look at this. Who knows who this is? Anyone immediately recognize this guy? The, no, okay. Uh, the painting above me here, this is of Italian composer, conductor, and teacher Antonio Salieri. Born in 1750, he was appointed the head, or the director of Italian opera by the Habsburg monarchy. Uh, and it's said that uh, he dominated Italian language opera in Vienna. The guy was just a big deal. Um, even as his works dropped from uh, performance and he ceased composing, apparently he still uh, was revered as, as one of the most important and sought-after teachers of his generation. So he was just a, a big deal. He was a big man on campus there in Vienna. That is, until 1781, when a young upstart from Salzburg named Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart came on the scene and, and quickly just overshadowed Salieri in every way. Now, the circumstances between uh, the kind of the relationship between these two composers has been much uh, mythologized over the years, but if Peter Schaeffer's play turned movie Amadeus, is that all correct? Uh, Salieri quickly grew increasingly intolerant of and ultimately tormented by Mozart. He, he was pricked deeply by the sheer magnitude of Mozart's musical genius, which just utterly dwarfed his own abilities. And in particular, he, he was incensed that God would allow such an arrogant, promiscuous, vile young man to be endowed with such a gift. He just couldn't put it together at all. In fact, if you've seen the play or, or the film, you'll remember that scene uh, from uh, what Peter Schaeffer wrote where eventually Salieri grows to the place where he actually ends up renouncing his faith in God altogether uh, just, just because of what he sees as the offense of the profoundly misplaced 
blessing, where he says, he says to God, from now on we are enemies, you and I. Because you choose for your instrument a boastful, lusty, smutty, infantile boy and gave me for reward only the ability to recognize the incarnation. Because you are unjust, unfair, unkind, I will block you, I swear it. I will hinder and harm your creature on earth as far as I am able. Now it's... It's been written. This is a play. Obviously, these aren't direct quotes, but this is, this is what he eventually came to as a result of this conflict between the two of them. So we're coming to conclude. We're concluding this summer teaching series this morning through the Ten Commandments entitled Ten Words. As we come now to the last and tenth word, you shall not covet. And yes, I realize full well that the illustration from the life of Antonio Salieri that I just mentioned, it's really more of an example of, of envy than coveting, like kind of a, a hatred and malice towards the object of your desire than simply an inordinate desire in and of itself. And yet, here's what I've come to discover about coveting, what I want to share with you about coveting in general this morning, and why I also believe there is undeniable intentional uh, divine intention in placing coveting is the last of the ten words. For coveting, uh, that is like an inordinate desire for what belongs to someone else, is actually, I've come to see, actually at the root, it's the root cause behind every other action prohibited in the Ten Commandments. Coveting is why we break all the other nine commandments. Which makes the tenth word actually something like a divine bookend on the other end of the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. Which, if you remember, we said in keeping that commandment, we would be most likely to keep all the other nine. It kind of puts these nice bookends on both ends. Uh, John Durham uh, says this in his commentary. The tenth commandment thus functions as a kind of summary commandment. The violation of which is the first step that can lead to the violation of any one or all the rest of the commandments, it was perhaps set last precisely because of this unique comprehensive application. I mean, just think about it. Coveting, uh, inordinate desire, that was at the root, that was the root cause behind the very first sin. Uh, as Eve, we're told in Genesis 3, she saw that the tree from which her and Adam had been forbidden from eating was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. So she took and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. It's the root cause behind the very first sin, and I believe it's also the root cause behind every other sin since then, everything we're tempted towards right up until today. A claim or statement here that I hope to unpack and make clear to all of us this morning, that coveting, it's the reason behind why we break all the other nine commandments. And so in order to help us learn how to rightly value things in our lives, that's what I believe this tenth word is, is ultimately its point, what it's pointing towards. I want to look at our passage today in just two ways. I want to show you the fruit of coveting, which I believe is very much what this tenth word is calling us away from. And then secondly, I want to look at the value of contentment, which is what I believe this tenth word is very much calling us to. So the, the fruit of, of coveting and the value of Contentment. Those are the two things we'll use to set up how we look at this. So if you close your Bible, Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to this passage, Exodus 20, beginning at verse 17. Follow along 
with me as we go through this, as we focus in particularly on the 10th word, yes, but see, as we've been saying all together, how all of these 10 words together call us out of the self-destructive ways of living we so often believe will lead to fullness of life and set us on the path to actually experiencing it. Okay, so let's look first of all at the fruit of coveting. What is the fruit of coveting? And for starters, maybe let's, let's establish a working definition of coveting. What, what are we talking about here? I mean, maybe you've heard me already kind of refer to coveting so far as inordinate desire, and I'll get more to the reason for that in a minute here. But as a baseline definition, what does it actually mean to covet? According to the Hebrew-English lexicon, which is just kind of a big dictionary that takes every Hebrew word in the Old Testament and gives us an English equivalent of what it's talking about, according to this lexicon, the Hebrew word for covet that we have in our passage means this, to desire, wish, long for, or crave something to a fault or detrimentally, especially the property of another person. Hey, which, which tells us two things. First of all, it tells us that the 10th word isn't forbidding desire in general, but is calling us away from a particular kind of desire that's detrimental to us, something that we're going to also look at more deeply later on in the second point. And secondly, it tells us something else. It tells us why God includes these specific examples uh, of things that we're not supposed to desire in this detrimental way. Namely, this is referring to desire for what belongs to someone else. But what is it about desire and craving that's so detrimental to us? And why does God mention our neighbor in particular here? He seems to be focusing so much on the neighbor, just like he did back in the ninth word about not bearing false witness. What's going on with that? Well, when we remember that the ten words were given to God's covenant people as a summary of both his character as well as how he wanted them to live in order for them to flourish as a people, we can, we can see, particularly like if we use the example of lying, we can see how lying is a violation of God's character as the truth, and we know that lying is also something de- detrimental, harmful to community and to relationship. So, so that's easy to see there, but maybe it's a little bit more difficult to understand how it is that something like desiring the property of others, that that would accomplish those same things, that that would bring about the same results. At least initially, it doesn't immediately make sense. And I think the answer is found when we come to see the fruit that results from coveting. I think that's, that's really where we ultimately start to see the detrimental effects of this. And so I'm going to give you two biblical examples, and then we'll talk about just some modern-day examples of what this looks like so we can really see what we're talking about. So firstly, one of the very, I think, most clear, obvious examples of this from the New Testament in the book of James. Uh, there, Jesus' half-brother James writes this, quote, What is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Okay, so do you see it? Already, he's making it pretty clear how coveting, the inordinate desire in itself, and he's connecting it with these different parts of the law of God and showing us the fruit that results from coveting is what makes it so detrimental to ourselves, to community. It's, it's, you're coveting, and so you, and, and then fill in the blank with whatever other word we're looking at. Coveting is the thing that leads, and so it's connected. Secondly, then, as it relates to community, Jesus says plainly, Matthew 22, 
asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Which means what? Well, it means that our love for God is expressed in part in our love for neighbor. And craving and longing for what belongs to your neighbor is going to be a violation of that. It's going to bring about brokenness in that relationship with your neighbor. Hear me, not because noticing that your neighbor has nice things is wrong in and of itself. Okay, Seeing that your neighbor's got a sweet TV, um, got the iPhone that you wanted, whatever it is, that in and of itself, that, that's not a problem. No, the problem, as I trust I don't really need to even explain to you, is that for most of us, we don't stop at simply noticing, right? <laughs> it's not just, hmm, that looks like very nice. No, most of us, noticing very quickly can and does turn into, and I need that for myself. And, and wondering why it is that God would bless them, someone like that, with that thing that I want so badly. That's exactly uh, where the trajectory went with Salieri and Mozart, right? I mean, this is a reality that we see with almost comic clarity in every preschool ever, where noticing that another kid has that toy or that thing which so, looks so nice, that, that's like a fraction of the experience. Before coveting, I desire that thing for myself, and then I'm going to literally walk over and rip it out of that kid's hands is the eventual result. Like, that's pretty clear. Uh, we, we can see clearly how, how it works there. And, and what James was saying a moment ago, the reason that God still includes this commandment in the list of ten words is that that inordinate desire for the things of others that we see on display in a preschool never really goes away. It doesn't really stop, actually. We just find more, you know, civilized, culturally acceptable ways of bringing about the same results as we get older. So, so, so that's why coveting is detrimental and why God sets it in the context of neighbor. We're seeing something, we're desiring it, and then it quickly turns into, I need that for myself. But here's where this word now moves from the safety of ancient Near East, the pages of our Bibles, right into the purses, pockets, and crossbody bags of pretty much every single person alive. Because think about this. At the time when the 10th word was first given, and for the most part in Jesus' day as well, things like neighbor and neighborhood were relatively clearly defined things, right? You knew what those things were were, like you lived in a small community, maybe you lived in a big city, but still, uh, uh, you, could, you could see physically right in front of you who your neighbors were, what belonged to them, so the command still very much applied, but whereas today, now, and the technological advances that have been made in the last few decades alone have now made the entire world your neighborhood, and the contents of every single one of your neighbor's possessions right here accessible to you at the swipe of a screen. You can see everything that they have. Which means, I think this 10th word is likely even more needed today than it has been at literally any other point in history. Not because we're any more prone to coveting and the fruit that, that it produces than people were in the Old Testament, but just because now of the sheer volume of our neighbor's stuff that we now have accessible for us to view. It's everywhere. So James already, he's laid out the algorithm of how this works, right? How coveting and craving the things that belong to our neighbors leads to this violation of all the other nine words. Be that an inordinate desire for your neighbor's stuff, his spouse, his sports car, whatever it is. 
Coveting is what will lead you to lie, to steal, to dishonor, even kill in order to gain for yourself what belongs to your neighbor or what even belongs to God. It's a thing that leads right into these, all these other violations. And God help us, not only has technology and social media made these things more accessible and available for us to find, we know this now. The, the algorithms of the apps themselves are designed to show you more and more of what they come to learn that you like. So you like looking at coveting people's houses? You're going to see tons and tons of houses in your feed. You like looking at other people's spouses? Your feed is going to be filled with other people's spouses and on and on and on. The algorithms are designed to show you what they come to learn you like. So how are we going to do this? How can we possibly... Get away from this. Uh, listen, and, and this is not a message about the dangers of technology and social media. That's not the, the point of what I'm describing here. I don't think anyone today is confused about the reality that these tools have the potential for great good, but also great harm. But I do think now understanding this algorithm that James laid out for us, how, how coveting leads us to harming the community as well as the image of God in us, I do think that we need to approach these tools with far more intentionality, far more awareness than most of us do, as well as with a clear understanding of the destructive fruit produced by coveting, what it leads to, which again, technology provides us with so much more opportunity to do. We need to pay attention to our hearts as we use these tools, pay attention to our desires and learn to pick up on much more quickly when noticing, appreciating, begins to shift into a detrimental desire, really a need, I need to have that thing for myself, to have that awareness, particularly with this flood of our neighbor's stuff now readily available to us in our pockets. Okay, so that's the fruit of coveting. Again, a harvest that I think this 10th word is very much calling us away from in order that we might both love God and neighbor well. But as we've seen with each of these words, along with every prohibition calling us away from something harmful to community as well as the image of God in us, there's also each word is calling us to something as well. And the last thing I want to look at together with you is what I think that something is. We're going to talk about the value of contentment. The value of contentment. In uh, yet another New Testament restatement of Old Testament commands, the Apostle Paul describes perfectly what I believe is a direct application of this 10th word as well as the antidote for coveting in Philippians 4, a passage that maybe you know well or even have memorized, where Paul says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And yeah, I know that that last verse very often is ripped out of context and used on like memes and posters describing you know, how God's going to enable you to bench 300 pounds or run a marathon or do your taxes. But hopefully you can see more clearly now when we put it into its proper context what Paul's actually talking about and what this 10th word is calling us to is contentment. Contentment. That's what Paul was talking about. He's saying that whether he had everything his heart wanted or nothing of what he wanted, there was still something for him about a relationship with Jesus that enabled Paul to be content with what he had rather than coveting what God had provided to someone else. 
something about it allowed him to be content no matter what. And I want to be really careful, really careful in applying this idea of contentment to the prohibition against coveting. Because on the one hand, there's been actually, I, I think, a lot of damage caused to some of us over the years when those in the church, those in positions of spiritual authority, have made it sound like what's truly godly, the really, truly spiritual people are, are people who are poor like Jesus. That's what we need to strive for, to be poor like Jesus was. We need to never desire to have more. We need to never desire to see a change in our present difficult circumstances and on and on. Just shut up and be content because look at all God has given you. That's not at all what, this, what Paul's talking about here. That's not what he means by just be content. Nor is he saying, on the other hand, that the goal of following Jesus or obedience to the tenth word is that we need to learn over time to simply put all desire to death entirely. It's to get to the place where I don't even notice my neighbor's stuff anymore. Right? Listen, for, for people that you know, maybe even for some people here this morning, that's a wrong understanding of this passage that's led you to reject the Christian faith entirely because you're just like, man, there's not a chance I'm doing that. I'm a passionate person. I have needs and desires. And man, Christianity, that's all about like crushing need. That's all about like just repressing desire. So I don't want anything to do with that. Not realizing that nothing could be further from the truth, actually. Or the fact that this whole idea of seeking to rid the heart and the mind of desires and cravings, that's, that's actually way closer to Buddhism than it is Christianity. That's not what we're seeking in the Christian faith, to put all desires to death and just get rid of all desire entirely. That's not what we're aiming for. But as we read Paul's restatement of the 10th word here in Philippians 4, it does beg the question, okay, well, how does that work then? And how does a relationship with Jesus teach me to be content in every, in every circumstance and avoid both the temptation to covet as well as uh, the, the self-destructive fruit that it brings? How does that work? And I think the answer to that question comes when we understand two things from this passage, both the uniqueness of the 10th word in itself, as well as the way that Jesus has supreme value above all other things. Those are the two ways that I think we can really reach what Paul was talking about and what I think the 10th word is calling us about. So first of all, very quickly, where you see the uniqueness of this 10th word is when you begin to notice that Whereas all the other nine words talk about a specific admonition about something we're supposed to do or not do. They're all describing actions of some kind. Whereas the tenth word instead speaks to our intentions, speaks to the desires of our heart. Which means what the tenth word is helping us to do is to move beyond kind of an outward external obedience alone and get down to the motivations of the heart. That's what the tenth word is all about. Because at a foundational level, you'll never experience true contentment by just not stealing or lying or worshiping idols or whatever if you don't also seek to understand and address what's going on underneath at a heart level that's making you desire to want to do those things. Which I think, in the, in the end, also kind of makes this command the hardest to follow. Because it's not just something external that you can do. In the end, it's not something people even see. But it's still going on inside you. Calvin said it this way, he said, If they, this is the people of Israel, if they had only heard, Thou shalt not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, they might have supposed that their whole duty would have been fully performed by mere outward observance. 
It was not then in vain that God, after having treated of piety and justice, should give a separate admonition that they were to not only abstain from evil doing, but also that what he had previously commanded be performed with sincere affection of the heart. More recently, Kevin DeYoung put it this way. He said, the 10th commandment is not an anticlimactic afterthought. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and try to be happy with whatever you have. No, even though we understand from Jesus the commandments all have internal dimensions, it would be easy to focus on mere external obedience alone if we didn't have the 10th commandment. It's calling us, it's pressing on something entirely different than the other nine. So that's how the uniqueness of the 10th word helps lead us to true contentment. It calls us to seek contentment at a heart level and, and rather than just simply an external only, just kind of fake it till you make it experience of contentment. This is how we experience the fullness of true contentment. But as I said, along with understanding and addressing what's going on underneath the surface of breaking the other nine commandments at a heart level, what the 10th word is also calling you to discover is where really in whom true contentment is ultimately found. And this takes us back to the way I described contentment, or, or sorry, I, I described coveting earlier as inordinate desire. Inordinate in the sense as like unwarranted or unreasonable amount put on something. And I described it that way because of something I found pretty profound that Tim Keller pointed out in his work on this commandment that he discovered from St. Augustine. So Keller says this, what you and I think of as sin are commandments one through nine. When you and I think of sin, we think breaking the rules. That's sin, and of course, breaking the rules is sin. But what Augustine said was a better definition of sin than breaking rules is disordered loves. Just think about that for a moment. Disordered loves. What Augustine meant by that was that the reason we fail to obey God and experience frustration, lack of contentment in life as a result, is not necessarily that we're loving the wrong things, but that we're loving them in the wrong order. We, we evaluate them wrongly, so we put value on less valuable things above things that actually have superior value, and that's why we experience the lack of contentment. C.S. Lewis uh, Put it this way in a well-known quote describing us as being like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. He says we are far too easily pleased. We, we value things of less value so much higher than we ought to. That's why I said at the beginning this tenth word really is about teaching us to rightly value things in our lives. So just to give you some examples, the eighth word we saw how having and caring for things has great value. That's how we were designed and made. And yet, when we value wealth and possessions above the God who gave us those things, disordering those loves, putting them in the wrong order, we experience stress, frustration. Maybe we're led to covet and even to steal what belongs to someone else because we need to have that for ourselves. We're, we're valuing that thing too highly in an inordinate way. Or... Saw in the seventh word, sex. It's a valuable treasure. But when we value sex above God, uh, the God who created it, we experience, again, stress. It's why we see sexual violence. It's why we see adultery. All these things because we are disordering these loves and not putting them in the right order. You can apply this literally to any one of the commandments. How we value things 
becomes the call of this word. So, yes, truly, Christianity isn't at all a religion about repressing our desire. No, it's absolutely, though, about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that teaches us over time to learn to rightly order our desires. It is that. It's going to reshape everything about our lives and take the things we used to value so highly and actually lower them down. Not get rid of them entirely, but put them in the right order. Again, as I say so often, not to rob us of joy, not to rob us of the fullness of life that we might be able to experience otherwise, but so that we can truly experience the fullness of life that God desires for us. We can enjoy these desires in the way that he designed them to work and be great things. So if you're not experiencing contentment in your life, and hear me, by contentment I'm not talking about happiness. Please, happiness is the most easily found and lost emotion in the world. Happiness for me is won and lost, you know, by how well a taco is made. That's something I'm not talking about. I mean contentment, which very much like joy is about a settled calm in our lives, regardless of the circumstances going on around us. If you're not experiencing that, which I think that's, that's what Paul was talking about in Philippians 4, if you're not experiencing that, one possible reason is that coveting, inordinate desire for what belongs to someone else is robbing you of that contentment. Or it could be that you are wrongly ordering the desires of your heart, placing things of lower value higher than God, as good as they are, valuing the, the goal of this being to value the giver of the gifts above the gifts themselves. I think that's the ultimate call. That's the, the secret Paul was talking about in Philippians 4. That's it. That we would value the giver of the good gifts above the gifts themselves. Or as Jesus himself said plainly, Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Again, those are all important things, right? Valuable stuff. I trust everyone had something to eat today. I'm glad, so glad you all put on clothes. These are important, valuable things. But he says, look, the Gentiles seek after these things. They, they order them as being the highest priority. That's what matters most. How do I look? How awesome is my outfit? He says, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Value that treasure above all others. And all these other things which matter so much to you will be added to you as well. In Psalm 19, which Jordan hopefully led us through this morning, we read these words that King David wrote again. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The just decrees of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. As we conclude this, these ten weeks today, digging deeper into the ten words, my prayer for each of us is that statements like these in the Psalms, as well as countless others that we find in the Bible don't sound nearly as strange as they did to us when we started 10 weeks ago. Maybe they're still hard to 
follow through on and really embrace, but they sound at least less strange. We can see what these guys were talking about when they spoke this way. My prayer is that you'd have a much more firmly established idea in your mind, first of all, that the ba- what the basis of the law itself is. When you think of the Ten Commandments, you'd, uh, it's the reason we keep reading verse 1 and 2 at the beginning of each message, because that's where it all begins. That's the foundation of the law. That the law of God doesn't actually begin with the law, but with grace. Not with what we do in order to earn our acceptance with God, but what God has already done in order to accept us. That in itself is just when you, when you really grasp that single gospel reality alone, that's just like his worldview changing when it comes to how we view the law of God, how we view God himself, and how we view our relationship with him. To know that through faith in Jesus, the work's already done. It's complete, and now our obedience to the law isn't about earning his acceptance. We obey him out of grateful thankfulness because we already are accepted by him. Secondly, my prayer is that you'd have much more firmly established how each word, both individually as well as collectively, calls us into the fullness of life that God intended us rather than limiting us. It frees us, frees us to enjoy life as God designed rather than restricting us from a freedom that we might otherwise have been able to enjoy. Again, transformational truth when you really see that and take hold of it. And lastly, my prayers we've all seen and will continue to know how the law of God reveals the character of God himself. It shows us what he's like. It also reveals the image of his in which we were made. These are all, all of these things are simple truths that even a child can understand and grasp. And yet, as I trust you've seen over these past 10 weeks, they're also deep, profoundly deep truths that touch us to the deepest parts of our human experience. So let's look at it one last time. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Don't worship anything else above me. Worship me rightly. Honor my name. Enjoy the patterns of rest that I have designed into creation for your blessing. Honor your parents. Respect life as a sacred gift. Honor marriage as a covenant. Don't steal. Don't lie. Guard the desires and intentions of your heart. Ten words describing a law of liberty written into the very fabric of creation that actually can deliver on the promise of life that so many other self-destructive ways of living today can only advertise for and all summarized in those most simple yet comprehensive words. The whole law of God summarized in these two phrases, love God, love people. It's the most simple definition of the whole thing. May God by his spirit enable us to walk more and more into this freedom and fullness of life that these 10 words are inviting us into. And as God's covenant people today, May we also help and encourage one another to do this as we walk along the path. As, we, as we're living today in a world filled with distractions and counterfeit claims, relentlessly advertising a wide, broad, beautiful-looking path that in the end only leads to destruction. May we together encourage one another to walk on that narrow path that truly leads to life. Amen. Amen.